ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The scene is Stockholm, Sweden, 50 years ago. It was shortly after bank hours had opened on the morning of August 23rd, 1973, that into a bank in central Stockholm walked a man who was wearing a wig, toy glasses, had makeup on his face, and from underneath a jacket, he pulled a machine gun and fired it up into the ceiling of the bank and yelled out that the party has just begun. The man who walked into the bank that morning, his name was... Jana Eric Olson. And he was a lifelong criminal. He's 32 years old, had been engaged in safe cracking and armed robberies since he was 16 years old. And this particular bank was his next target. There are probably about 40 people in the bank at this point. In the panic, some bank employees are able to flee, others hit the floor. He starts ordering some of them to tie up each other. And then a silent alarm is sounded and a couple of plainclothes policemen come upon the, the scene. A brief shootout follows. A policeman is injured in the hand and they retreat, leaving Olsen in the bank with his hostages. He pretty much will end up taking four of the bank employees as hostages that day. And they're going to be the ones who remain with him throughout the six-day siege. Stockholm Syndrome. That's a term you've probably heard of. And if you have, you kind of know exactly what it means without thinking too much about it, right? It's when a person develops feelings of affection or connection with their captor or abuser. What you might not know is that term was coined based on the events that unfolded over this six-day siege in Stockholm 50 years ago this past week. And everybody assumed that when these uh, victims were finally released, that they would hold the hostage uh, captors in contempt and hate them for having you know, held them captive for six days. But in actual fact, the exact opposite occurred. They hugged and kissed their captors and they defended them after they were freed. All of which, on the surface, is pretty confusing. But there are huge question marks around whether Stockholm Syndrome is real. Because it's not a formal diagnosis, psychologists don't have an agreed definition of it, there's very little research on it to begin with. And if you dig deeper into the story of what happened in that robbery, it's less clear-cut that the hostages simply developed affection for their captors. And what Stockholm Syndrome just encapsulates so beautifully is how a natural response to an incredibly intense and acute situation can be manipulated into something that takes hold in culture and spreads like wildfire and suddenly just becomes assumed wisdom. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the story behind Stockholm Syndrome. So the robbery that birthed the term Stockholm Syndrome started with escaped Swedish convict Jana Erik Olsen walking into a bank and taking four employees hostage. He was soon joined by a second convict because Olsen had three demands. He wants to have $700,000 in cash, which is probably about $4 million or so in today's money. He wants a car that's fully gassed up so he can make an escape. And he wants the release of a prisoner who he had done time with named Clark 
Olufsen. And Clark Olufsen is probably one of the most notorious bank robbers and criminals in Sweden. This is history writer Christopher Klein. And the authorities pretty much give Olsen what he was asking for. The police send Clark Olufsen into the bank, hoping he can act as a kind of double agent, coaxing Olsen out and diffusing the situation in exchange for his prison sentence being reduced. But it didn't exactly work out like that. Olsen and Olufsen would end up spending six days holed up in the bank's vault with their hostages, three women and a man. So finally on the sixth day, they pump tear gas into the vault and Olsen ultimately surrenders. But what's kind of strange is that the hostages refuse to come out first. The police want the hostages to come out first, but they refuse to come out first because they're afraid that once they leave the vault, the police are going to kill both Jana Olsen and Clark Olsen. So they actually form sort of like a human shield around the two bank robbers. Shortly after the ordeal, Swedish psychiatrist Niels Bayero coined the term Stockholm Syndrome as a way to explain this confusing and surprising relationship that had developed between the hostages and their captors. Niels had been working with the police on this case, and that is the first chink in the armour for this term. Because as the thinking around Stockholm Syndrome has evolved, it's been noted that many people felt the police bungled the operation at the time. And so labelling the victims as suffering from this syndrome, by someone aligned with the police no less, displaced and deflected the blame onto the victims. More on that in a bit, but let's just backtrack for a moment. The fact is the hostages did form some sort of bond with their captors. So what kind of psychological processes might lead to this? I guess the more time we spend with others, the more we can build empathy and compassion for other people. So that's sort of the contact hypothesis. The more time we spend with others, the more compassion we have for them. This is Dr. Helen Patterson, Associate Professor in Forensic Psychology at the University of Sydney. There's also this thought that perhaps these victims confuse the lack of aggression against them by the hostage captors as, you know, an act of kindness. So they think that this person has been so nice to them because they haven't been you know, physically aggressive with them. And they mistake this lack of aggression as an indication of kindness. And it's true that the hostages weren't hurt during the six-day siege. In the reporting that followed the event, there were certain acts of kindness that were highlighted. One of the hostages, uh, Christine Enmark, you know, would begin to shiver and Olsen draped a wool jacket over her shoulders, mm. soothed her when she had a bad dream. And when hostage Elizabeth Olgren complained of claustrophobia, Olsen allowed her to walk outside the vault attached to a 30-foot rope. Later, Olgren would tell the New Yorker in a 1974 interview, she said, I remember thinking he was very kind to allow me to leave the vault. And so these benevolent acts start to curry the favor of the hostages are, who are inside. And overall, they think, well, the robbers have treated us well so far. And our biggest fear is that the police are going to do something dramatic that's going to be a bigger threat to our lives than what the captors are doing. There was also some thought that these victims were angry at the police response. They thought that the police put them in a vulnerable situation and how they responded. 
you know, the police have engaged in this shootout that's maybe putting them in the crossfire and they're more fearful of being collateral damage. That's another thing associated with Stockholm Syndrome. It's not only, uh, well, I mean, the definition of Stockholm Syndrome is a bit unclear and we can talk about the different definitions that exist, but some people suggest it's not only that you, you know, hold your captors in positive regard, but it's also that you have negative feelings against the authorities. That's really interesting. Yeah. So tell me about the definition of Stockholm Syndrome then. It has changed. Some people suggest that there are four common features of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, One, that the victims experience direct threats. Another, that they are kept in isolation for a longer period of time. Another, that they often have an opportunity to escape, but they actually don't escape. And another one is that they, you know, show sympathy for their captors post-captivity. But Other people suggest that, you know, there are other features that are associated with it. So that's a problem, I think, with this idea about Stockholm Syndrome is that, you know, the public have this idea of what it is, but there's no real agreement in the literature as to what it is. I also think it's it's really difficult to do research in this area. We can't, you know, our university ethics committees would not let us uh, capture you know, hundreds of people and hold them hostage and see what happens then. That's obviously wouldn't get through the ethics committees. So it's difficult to do research in this area. For these reasons, Stockholm Syndrome isn't a formal diagnosis. In psychology, we have the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And this is like the Bible of psychological disorders. And this is what we use when diagnosing uh, people with psychological disorders. Stockholm Syndrome is not actually in the DSM-5 because there's no agreed definition. So it's it's not a, a real psychological disorder or syndrome that people can be diagnosed with. But Helen says there is also something in this rare dynamic that's been observed and labelled before. So prior to Stockholm Syndrome being coined, there was the more plainly termed identification with aggressor. I was uh, Anna Freud, who was Sigmund Freud's daughter. Uh, she was the one who popularized that term. So the term was around before uh, Stockholm Syndrome, and it was used sometimes to describe Holocaust survivors because s- sometimes they found in the Nazi concentration camps that some of the people within the camps would identify with the Nazis. And, you know, for example, if there were bits of Nazi uniform that were discarded, they'd wear them, they'd mm. parade around um, wearing them and wear swastikas and so forth because perhaps they identified with the aggressor in the situation. But as part of the contested nature of all of these concepts, there's an alternative explanation that's pretty important to consider. It could also be that they were using that to, you know, appeal to the aggressor as well, uh, to get on their good side. So it could have been a survival strategy. And I think that maybe that's that's true for Stockholm Syndrome as well. It could be that you build this compassion and these positive feelings because it's a survival strategy. If you make them like you, they're less likely to hurt you. In psychology, we talk about stress responses and often we talk about fight or flight as being the two alternatives when you're in a stressful situation. But sometimes you can't really do either. You can't fight against your aggressor and you're held captive, so you can't leave. But there's sometimes people suggest that there's an alternative, which is fawning. Mm. And uh, this is more common in women where you, you know, behave nicely towards them in the hopes that if you're nice to them, they will be nice to you and they won't hurt you. We're going to return to this idea that what's been termed Stockholm Syndrome might actually just be survival strategies at play. 
For now, here's Associate Professor of Forensic Psychology, Helen Patterson, again. So the term you you mentioned, like, is really well known by the public. And even though it's debated in the psychological community and sort of not really, the definition isn't pinned down, when someone hears Stockholm Syndrome, they immediately know that it's referring to when a hostage, you know, falls in love or, you know, identifies with their, their captor. Why has it so taken the public imagination and sort of drilled in that way? Because it's so paradoxical, you wouldn't think this would happen. And yet there aren't cases where it does. And I think that we have this availability heuristic. So because we hear about it in the media and it's so sensationalized because it's so counterintuitive that it's talked a lot about. And then we can think about it because we hear about it so often. And it's not just the media as well. I mean, we have stories about this. When you think about, you know, Beauty and the Beast, that is the classic tale Mm. of somebody being held captive and, you know, not just feeling positively, but, you know, falling in love and getting married and living happily ever after with the captors. So, I mean, it exists in our, in our you know, common ideas of, of what happens. That is so interesting. You're so right. I mean, revisiting that story as an adult, you read it completely differently. I know. It's just like, this is not okay. This is not okay what he's done to her. How are we making little girls watch this? Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the story behind the term Stockholm Syndrome. This past week marks the 50th anniversary of the bank robbery that led to the term being coined. And so far, we've been talking about the label and the events that led to its birth at a kind of arm's length. But the hostages were real people living through a terrifying situation. And one of them was a 23-year-old named Christine and Mark. And she said, are you interested in Stockholm Syndrome? Uh, and I said, well, to be honest with you, I'm, I've always been a little bit suspicious of the idea. Mm. And she said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> this is family therapist Alan Wade. And he first met Christine a decade ago to discuss her experience. And she, as well as Alan, have some thoughts. Christine was suspicious of the concept, but also, I would say, oppressed by it. Worried about it in the sense that she worried it whether or not it had any validity for her. Alan says it's necessary to understand in more detail what the experience was actually like for the hostages in order to properly understand why they behaved the way they did. So, for example, one of the first incidents that led Christine to worry that the police weren't really on top of the situation was the police's initial confusion around the identity of the robber. At first, the police thought the man who'd gone to the bank to rob it was another criminal. Not Yana Eric Olson. Now, it turns out the man who they thought it was had escaped to Hawaii and was living in Hawaii. Nonetheless, they brought his 16-year-old brother down to the bank vault, told, the, told this young man that his brother had taken hostages, and walked into the bank vault with this young man, thinking they were going to get the younger brother of this man to negotiate. But it wasn't the younger brother. So when he said, you know, oh, we have your younger brother here to talk with you. Olsen discharged around above their heads. And they, and they panicked, of course. Oh, my God, he would even kill his brother. So it just created more chaos, less safety for the hostages, more concern about what is going on here. Every time the police intervene, the situation gets worse, not better. Now, what had been happening in the meantime is that Janne Olsen had realized he needed to get out of the bank vault. 
So he had been trying to negotiate to have a helicopter arrive so that he and one of the hostages could get on the helicopter and leave. And the other hostages would be okay. And he promised that whoever left with him, when they would land, he would let the hostage go and no one would be harmed. The police weren't agreeing to this. And in the meantime, Christine Enmark was hearing all of this. And she had volunteered to be the hostage who would leave with Janne Olsen. And when she told me that she had volunteered, she looked at me in a very serious way and said, uh, why did I volunteer? Why did I offer to go with Janne Olsen? Did I have Stockholm Syndrome? And, and that was a real question. That was troubling her. But Alan suggests there was a selflessness to the act because Christine had overheard a phone call one of the other hostages named Brigitta had made home to her husband. My Brigitta was married and had two children. And she was saying to the effect, yes, dear, I'm a hostage in the bank. I'll not be home for dinner. You will have to pick up the girls from school. So Christine overheard this conversation with Brigitta. So I asked her, uh, how did that influence your thinking about what you wanted to do hearing Brigitta talk with her children? And she just looked at me in a very serious way. So I, I said, you were protecting those children. You were protecting their mother. That's why you volunteered. And she said, Yes, you know, I had a purpose. I'm from the north of Sweden. Now, what that means is that she's independent and strong and takes care of business. The final detail I want to mention here is a conversation Christine had with the Prime Minister of Sweden while she was held hostage in the bank. She had had a 50-minute telephone conversation with the Prime Minister of Sweden, arguing with him telling him that he ought to let her leave with Janne Olsen. It's an extraordinary conversation. What you have is a extremely articulate and determined young woman arguing with the Prime Minister of Sweden, telling the Prime Minister in no uncertain terms that he ought to let her go so that the situation resolves itself. He refused, of course. And finally, Olaf Palma seems to have had enough. And he says, well, you will have to content yourself that you will have died at your post. That's that's incredible. What did she say about having been told that by the Prime Minister? Well, she loved Olaf Palma, and she was outraged that he would talk to her like that. And she was very unhappy with his response to her. So at that point, I asked, basically proposed to Christine, you know, Christine, protecting those children, trying your best to create safety, trying to manage an unmanageable police response, looking after people and yourself, mm. arguing mm. with Olaf Palma about what ought to happen. Uh, those are not symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome. And she laughed and agreed. So in other words, by looking closely at the details of the events, we found uh, very clear accounts of how she had actually responded that are completely inconsistent with the notion of Stockholm Syndrome. Once the siege was over, Christine was also publicly critical of the police response, and she refused to testify against the two criminals leading police psychiatrist Niels Barrow to label her as having what he called Stockholm Syndrome. But the really shocking thing is, he never actually spoke to her. No, never had any... And that's been another uh, sort of tragic part of this story, is that none of the world experts on Stockholm Syndrome have ever interviewed or ever attempted to interview Christine Enmark. So she's one of the most famous and one of the most profoundly misunderstood women in psychology. 
And yet, the Stockholm Syndrome label persists. In more recent decades, the term has been deployed to explain dynamics that can evolve in cult situations and in domestic violence situations. Here's forensic psychologist Helen Patterson again. Yeah, so I guess in the original definition, it was, you know, a situation where there was no previous relationship between the hostage and the captor. But now it's sort of evolved and people have suggested, well, maybe this is what uh, victims of domestic violence experience, because we often ask ourselves, you know, why didn't they leave? Why could they stay in this situation? But I think we have to be really careful in this situation because it can be seen almost as blaming the victim and sort of pathologizing the victim in this situation because it's saying it's something wrong with them rather than saying there's something wrong with the perpetrator who would do that to somebody. Terms like Stockholm Syndrome are dangerous because they obliterate the actual reality of what victims experience. They let institutions off the hook for their failures. This is investigative journalist Jess Hill. In her award-winning book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse, she critically evaluates the term and its application. They are a comfort to people that instead of there being something wrong with the institutions that we trust, or instead of there being a systematic sort of form of oppression at play, that the problem is really with the person who was targeted. And that's very comforting because it makes us feel like this is the sort of thing that happens to other people, nobody I know, and certainly not myself, would ever respond like that. Jess says this tendency to underestimate the experience of the victim happens when we simplify their abuse. We have focused primarily in situations of domestic violence, we've focused on physical violence and we've almost completely ignored as a society what coercive control is and how coercive control is akin to a hostage situation, a psychological hostage situation. And in terms of the situation for those hostages in that Swedish bank 50 years ago, Jess says... I think what this highlights perfectly is that so often we disconnect an individual's response from the environment that that response is occurring in, especially back in the 70s. We've got a bit more um, consciousness around this now, but there was an absolute trust in authorities for, for a lot of the general public that police are there to catch the bad guys. Anybody who doesn't trust police is probably on the side of the bad guys. And why would a normal person be on the side of a bad guy? Especially a normal person whose life was being threatened by that bad guy. There's a really beautiful quote from Natasha Kampusch, who was kidnapped in Vienna in 1998 when she was 10. Um, she was held captive in a dungeon for eight years. And Again, when she escaped, as she did, people questioned why she hadn't escaped when she'd had the chance earlier. Why, when her captor had taken her on a skiing trip, had she not escaped? Not asking, you know, questions like, had he threatened her, as he had, and threatened to kill other people if she even um, attempted to escape. But she, she was accused of having Stockholm Syndrome, which she found deeply dehumanizing. And what she said, I think, is so pithy. She said, looking for normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome. It's a survival strategy. 
I want to return to the events of 50 years ago and the question of why the term Stockholm Syndrome has lodged so firmly in our public awareness and pop culture. History writer Christopher Klein points out, if it wasn't for a second hostage situation not long after the attempted bank robbery in Sweden, the term might have faded into obscurity. It's really in 1974, so about a year after this happens, that you start seeing this term starting to pop up in the media. And the reason that it really gains probably as much notoriety as it does is because of the kidnapping of newspaper heiress Patty Hearst ah. uh, by the Simonese Sim- uh, Liberation Army. So she's kidnapped. I think she's 19 years old at the time. She's kidnapped from her residence in Berkeley, California, by this left-wing group that engages in bank robberies around uh, the West Coast of the United States. And after a few months, a message is released by Patty Hearst that she is siding with her captors and is a member of the Symbolese Liberation Army and then is seen on a videotape at one of the bank robberies that they're carrying out. So while this is going on, there's speculation about what has happened. Why is she siding with her abductors? Stockholm Syndrome starts being thrown around as the answer. And you start seeing this appearing more and more in the newspapers. And then ultimately it's used unsuccessfully as a defense strategy is that Patty Hearst had Stockholm Syndrome. Right. So I'm not really sure if it weren't for Patty Hearst that Stockholm Syndrome would really be something that's in our lexicon and in our historical consciousness. Mm. Because even now people are like Stockholm Syndrome, but... You don't really know what its what its origin is. Yeah. So certainly it was a big event in Sweden at the time, but it wasn't this worldwide news story that everyone was glued to around the globe. It's really the Patty Hearst kidnapping and trial that makes Stockholm Syndrome something that really settles into historical memory. And seared in historical memory, it remains. Given that there's so many issues around this term, what the definition is, whether it blames the victim, why do you teach it in your courses? Why why do you still talk about it? Why is it still useful to talk about at all? Uh, I talk about it in my course because it's so part of the public understanding and public belief. And I think it's important that we recognize that, yes, there's this idea that exists, but we need to critically evaluate it and for them to know that it's not actually a real diagnosis. So I think I should say in, in my teaching, when I talk about it, I, I mention it, but most of the teaching is on post-traumatic stress disorder and other effects of victimization. I think we ought not to be making up psychological theories of violating and oppressed people without talking with them initially. You know, I think we ought to be looking very carefully at how humans actually respond to violence and other adversities, how people work to preserve their own and others' dignity, how people spontaneously try to escape and create safety for other people. I think we need to be very careful whenever we hear someone who has been oppressed be pathologized. We need to look at that very carefully and not just take for granted that the world of psychiatry has clear answers on why people behave in certain ways in violent and abusive situations and really grapple with the fact that, you know, 
for around 100 years, this world of psychiatry has been pathologizing mostly women to make violence disappear, to make institutions untouchable, to make it look like the problem was that of the woman's and not of the person who was abusing her. That is Jess Hill, investigative journalist and author of See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. Before her, you heard from Alan Wade, a family therapist based in Vancouver. He has a special interest in addressing interpersonal violence, and he's also spoken in depth with Christine and Mark, one of the hostages from that Stockholm bank siege. You also heard from Helen Patterson, Associate Professor of Forensic Psychology at the University of Sydney, and history writer Christopher Klein. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producers Fiona Pepper and Rose Kerr and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.